and welcome to Medium Cool, a movie podcast. I am your host, Austin Glidden, and hey, you can check us out on social media at Medium Cool Pod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. It's facebook.com backslash Medium Cool Pod. You can also search Medium Cool Pod on Instagram, will pop up, and you can at Medium Cool Pod on Twitter. You can also email us at mediumcoolpod at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter under Austin Glidden, at Austin Glidden. Uh, you can find our friend Joe if you want to talk to him. Uh, at Joe Shearer nine, uh, a lot of this stuff is in our production notes, but you should definitely just you know come hang out with us on social media. Currently, we actually have a poll up for next week's episode where we're gonna be celebrating Barry director Barry Levinson's birthday, and there are three films that we're allowing you to choose from uh, between now and next Friday. It's uh, uh, The Natural, starring Robert Redford from 1984, really great, and then there's uh, Good. Good Morning Vietnam, starring Robin Williams, of course, really great, from 87. And then in 88, he made Rain Man, which stars Dustin Hoffman and Tom Cruise. Remember, choose the one that you want to hear us talk about, not necessarily your favorite. So which would you like to, you know, hear us give you our thoughts on? By all means, go to Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. We have a post on each of those platforms, and you can do that also. Definitely subscribe, follow, whatever it is that you're doing to listen to this. Uh, follow us on there, please. And if you feel so inclined, please give us a rating uh, or a uh, and or a review. We'd really appreciate it. It really does help content creators out when you do such things, and we would uh, we'd be very thankful. So today's episode, we're going to be uh, kind of having a memorial retro review for the late great Billy Wilder, who died 19 years ago today, and. Um, he was a trailblazer of a filmmaker, and we went ahead and chose, <clears throat> excuse me, I chose The Apartment. I, I gave it up to Joe, and I was like, hey, man, you cool with this? He's like, yeah. So, <laughs> so um, you know, we chose The Apartment, uh, one of my all-time favorites. So, you know, spoiler there, but what does Joe think? You have to wait and see. Uh, but The Apartment, we're going to be talking about that. It's going to be great fun. Uh, I'll tell you a little bit about Billy Wilder's history as well and uh, the film's history and motion picture production code. I mean, I kind of get into some of that historical stuff. It's it's fun. Hopefully you'll learn something. Now, before we get to the apartment, uh, I do want to talk about a documentary that I watched yesterday. And uh, uh, yesterday, I'm recording this on Sunday, actually, before the episode drops. So this would have been last Saturday. And it's uh, I, I went to the live virtual screening for the new documentary called 30 Years of Sacrifice. It is a documentary on the what I would consider legendary metal band Living Sacrifice. Many consider them, quote-unquote, a Christian metal band. Uh, I fucking hate that. Though they are Christians, I hate just the Christian music banner because really it's just an industry, and all that ends up happening is it just segregates them from the rest of metal, when in reality, Living Sacrifice is as good as any other metal band, so fuck you. Anyways... So, um, but I got to watch this documentary. This was my favorite band in just in the world from about 1998 to about 2002, probably or something. And uh, I love, love, love Living Sacrifice. So I got to to watch the movie, the premiere screening, and uh, there was a Q and uh, and A afterwards, which I got to ask some questions to to the bandmates. And I'm actually old friendly. I'll, I'll call us friendly acquaintances. We followed each other you know, on social media and stuff over the years. But Matt Putman was their percussionist on the record, uh, The Hammering Process and Conceived in Fire in the early 2000s. And uh, I think he joined the band in the late 90s. 
And uh, yeah, so uh, I'm actually going, to, I'm setting up right now. We're checking his schedule. He's in the studio right now. But we're uh, we're going to be planning a an interview with one of the members of Living Sacrifice, and that'd be really great. We'll be able to talk to them about their career because Living Sacrifice is a very small chunk of what they did. They did a lot of non metal stuff more than they did the metal stuff early on. So uh, I'll be excited to talk to Matt again. And um, yeah, so the the documentary was cool, and and I was planning on reviewing it for this episode because I like doing these kind of solo reviews, and then Joe and I do a long form thing. And it's worked out really well, but I decided against it this time. <clears throat> excuse me. I decided against it this time because uh, the documentary is really just a chronological retelling, and, and it's wonderful, uh, but it's a chronological retelling of the history of Living Sacrifice uh, from you know 1989 to today, which, again, it's 30 years of sacrifice because the film was mostly completed in 2019, I believe, and then uh, they had to postpone... Uh, the final show they wanted to have like this thirty year show because they're still around. They took a break, like a several year break in the middle at some point, but they got back together in like two thousand eight or something. And uh, anyways, they they were going to do this big banger of a thirty year anniversary show kind of a thing, even though it was going to be year thirty one. Uh, and then twenty twenty, of course, was the year of COVID, so then they had to push that off and. It was just a whole thing. So everything was virtual this time, and uh, they're going to throw a big banger at some point in the future, I hope. All of that to say, I grew up in the church. I just, I just want to kind of tell a story, and I'll talk more about the documentary uh, whenever I interview one of the guys. But I, I think this is an interesting story that we can start with, and then we'll get to the apartment with Joe. I grew up in the church. My grandfather was a pastor. Uh, my mother, my grandmother, my entire family, pretty much on my mom's side, went to this church. And so I grew up in the church, and I didn't really have very many friends, quite frankly, outside of uh, church. Uh, when I was in elementary school and in the early middle school years, I did have friends at school, but I didn't really hang out with them much outside of school, with the exception of maybe one or two people, maybe two or three, I guess. And so uh, by the end of my middle school years, and I was homeschooled, quote-unquote. I'm doing very hard air quotes. I was homeschooled for high school years. I ended up, I'm a homeschooled dropout, actually, because I stopped in 10th grade. Uh, but anyways, um, I got my, you know, I have a grad degree now. I went and got my GR, or GRE, my GED and all that. I don't know why I'm telling you all this. The point is this, all right? I was homeschooled, so the only friends I had in high school years were my friends at the church. And Whenever I started with the youth group there, they there were kids there that I gravitated toward that listened to metal and like hardcore stuff. So I was introduced to bands that some of you might know, uh, like Zayo, Unashamed, Overcome, you know, uh, Mind Rage, like all of these cool bands, Embodiment, Training for Utopia, Stretch Armstrong, all these great bands. This is probably, uh, I think I first heard it in 96, started listening to it in 97, but I got really big to it in 98. So in 98, my favorite band was Zayo. And I hear Living Sacrifice's 1997 release, Reborn, and it completely blew my mind, just completely changed the game for me. And shortly after that, they became just my favorite band. I still think that record holds up. It's great. It's a great metal record. So, you know, I, I, uh, I fall in love with Living Sacrifice. And then I'm also a big fan of a band that I saw at Cornerstone Music Festival in 1999 called Esocaris. Esocaris has... Corey Putman, who is now the vocalist for Norma Jean, Anthony Green, who is in Living Sacrifice still, 
and Matthew Putman, who was the percussionist I mentioned knowing from Living Sacrifice around the years that I'm talking about, in the late 90s and early 2000s. And so um, Matt Putman was in Esocaris. I got on their message board, started talking to him on there. We ended up exchanging AOL Instant Messenger names, and we became friends. And uh, so he, I remember him telling me he was in Living Sacrifice, and I just freaked out. I was at my dad's house. He had the internet. I was talking on AOL Instant Messenger. This is back with dial-up, right? And it was like you pay by the minute or something. So I couldn't be online very long. And uh, yeah, man, I, I remember being so excited. And the first Living Sacrifice show that came through was at the Emerson Theater. And I watched in Indianapolis. And I watched him, Matt, play with them. And it blew my mind that they had two drummers. One guy had the kick drum and the full kit. And then Matthew Putman had stand-up percussion drums, you know, like he had a snare and cymbals and stuff, but he didn't do the, the kick drum or anything. He just did auxiliary drumming. And man, it was unbelievable. I, it blew my mind. And Matt was, he's just one of those guys that's just like so kind. And he would hang out with me at the shows. He'd bring me swag from S.O. Karras and stuff. Just just a, a, a real, uh, you know, pure cut diamond, that guy. So anyways, they were just the biggest shit to me. I just thought they were great. So, you know, year, a few years later, they stopped being my favorite band. I got into a lot of other bands. I was in a fairly popular band in Indiana. And so, you know, I was a bigger fan of bands like Every Time I Die, Poison the Well, so on and so forth. <laughs> I love that. Any movie fans that are not metal fans have no idea what I'm talking about, but just bear with me. So anyways, like, you know, now we're 20 years later, right? Living Sacrifice is over 30 years old. Occasionally, I go back and listen to usually their album, Reborn. I mean, that's kind of my, my jam. But it was so cool to hear about the documentary coming out and watching it last night on, or last Saturday, I guess, when this comes out. And I watched it on my laptop, and it was just, uh, you couldn't pause it or anything. I mean, this was like a stream. Like, you had to watch it along with everyone else. And so I'm just, like, sitting there watching. It reminded me of, like, being in a theater or something, you know. And I'm watching it. And, man, it just does such a great job at telling the story of Living Sacrifice, telling, you know, how they, uh, how they moved forward um, in their career, the influence that they had on other bands, and, and how they've made it to today, you know. And so if you're a fan of metal, you should definitely find this. I don't know where it's going to be yet. You can definitely, if you search 30 Years of Sacrifice, you'll find the official website. I believe you can find and purchase access through that. I encourage you strongly to go check out this documentary. Not because it's the most like incredible documentary, the most phenomenal documentary I've ever seen. It's not that. It just tells a really important story about a really important metal band. And uh, yeah, you should definitely go check it out. Now, again, they talk a little bit about this. And in the Q&A, I asked some questions about this because I think like the idea of Christian music is bullshit because much like Corey Putman, the singer from Norma Jean said uh, in the documentary, he talks about, you know, you can't, you can't assign a religious belief to a sound, you know. And now I, I would take it a little further because there is a message with lyrics, uh, but I mean, dude, there are quote-unquote Christian bands that don't sing about God in some songs. So are those songs not Christian? I'll probably get into all of this when I interview one of the guys. But, you know, uh, they, they do talk about their spirituality in, in the documentary, which is no surprise to me. Of course, I grew up in the church, and I, I loved them in, for large, in large part for that reason, because they were such a good band, and they shared my beliefs. 
course, my beliefs have evolved and changed over time, and I believe theirs probably has too. And so uh, definitely go check out this documentary, though. I know that was just kind of like a random story. Oh, wait, I didn't even tell you the best part of the story. So my mom, who, who died in 2018, my mom actually loved Living Sacrifice. Now, I'm going to retell this story uh, to whoever I talk to, I'm sure, but I'm going to let you guys hear it this time. So my mom actually liked Living Sacrifice. When I first played the first track on Reborn for uh, their album Reborn, you know, whenever it first kicked in, she was like, this sounds like hell sounds. Like she just assumed this is like demonic, right? Because there's screaming and things. And so I remember years later, though, uh, the youth group, there were so many hardcore kids and metal kids in the youth group, the youth group would sometimes together go to shows. And usually they were at churches or at a venue where the whole show was made up of quote unquote Christian bands. And so we went to, uh, as I mentioned, the Emerson Theater for the first show. And my mom was there, and, you know, she was there to supervise, basically, so she watched the show. And Living Sacrifice actually kind of blew her mind. And prior to that, she had she liked two different songs. One was called Reject, which was their big hit, and they had a music video for and the other one was called No Longer. And she just liked the drums. She used to pound her chest to the kick drums, you know. And so uh, I remember telling Matt, uh, their percussionist, I was like, hey, man, could you dedicate one of these two songs to my mom if you play them? He's like, yeah, dude, we're playing both of them. I'll shout it out. So it was really funny because Bruce, their singer, would be like, this song's called No Longer. And then you'd hear Matt, this song goes out to Austin's mom. And like, like, really, like really fast and like way higher than Bruce, you know. <clears throat> and you'd just like hear him scream that my mom would freak out. And, you know, Matt would do this at every show. Every time I asked him. He would do it for every show, and I have I have a good I have some pictures with him and the band from back then when I was a teenager. Maybe I'll post those uh, in in uh, as we lead into an interview, uh, if and when we get to that. Um, but yeah, so it, it, you know, Living Sacrifice has a close place to my heart as well because it was a place for my mom and I to connect in an area where we did not connect anywhere else, and. She, bless her heart, she tried to support me through my hardcore and, and metal bands and stuff, but she just really didn't like it. But Living Sacrifice was the key. And even after she had had a stroke and had like no short-term memory and she was battling cancer and within the last two years, every time I saw her, I feel like if music was brought up, she'd go, hey, whatever happened to that Living Sacrifice band? And she'd ask me this because of the short-term memory issue like three or four times in one sitting, you know. Uh, but, you know, she would always ask about Living Sacrifice. So... This is why it's so meaningful to me. I'm very excited to actually be able to talk to some of the members at some point. And uh, yeah, just definitely go check it out. Again, I know that there's like a big nostalgia for me and a lot of the people that watched it last night because it was overwhelmingly praised. Uh, but I encourage you to go check it out. I think you could probably find it for like 10 bucks or something. And I know that might be a lot of money for some people. But, you know, throw some support toward these folks. This is a completely independently made documentary, and it actually is very well done for what it's trying to accomplish. So all that said, 30 years of sacrifice. Go check it out. Uh, but now we're going to go ahead and jump into our uh, kind of memorial episode for Billy Wilder. Just one of the all in most film circles would be considered one of the all time greats, uh, you know, to ever show his talents on screen. I mean, he's really, really phenomenal. Um, but we'll see what Joe thinks of The Apartment, which we're going to be covering today. So without further ado, here you go. All right, Joe, we're here in memory 
of Billy Wilder today. We're going to be talking about the apartment, and um, I do want to start talking about Billy Wilder, though. I'm going to going to set us up for this, okay? So bear with me here. Uh, Billy Wilder is a name synonymous with greatness in most film circles. Wilder, an Austrian-born filmmaker, moved to Berlin, Germany in the 1920s. He broke into filmmaking as a screenwriter in 1929 and wrote many scripts until 1933 when Hitler came into power. Once the Nazi party became prominent, a prominent force, Wilder fled Germany and came to America, where he co-directed a picture called Bad Seed in 1934, which I have not seen, but um, he co-directed that, and then he didn't direct again until 1942 with his breakout film, The Major and the Minor, a film about a, frust a frustrated city girl that disguises herself as a youngster in order to get a cheaper train ticket home. But little Susu finds herself in a whole heap uh, of grown-up trouble when she hides out in a compartment with a handsome major. Wilder followed that film with a film that I also haven't seen called Five Graves to Cairo. I have seen The Major and the Minor, which is a fun kind of first film, and there's a few notable actors in it. Uh, I saw it in school. Anyways, Wilder's first true banger, however was released in 1944, starring Fred McMurray, Barbara Stanwyck, and Edward G. Robinson. And that movie was the film noir classic, Double Indemnity. The success of Double Indemnity skyrocketed Wilder to prominence, which led to another banger, The Lost Weekend, which depicts the desperate life of a chronic alcoholic who is followed uh, through a four-day drinking bout. Now, it won Oscars for Best Actor in a Leading Role, Best Screenplay, Best Director, and Best Picture that year. So at this point, Joe, as you can tell, Billy Wilder is becoming a top guy, as we'd say in wrestling. Yeah. Top guy. Mm -hmm. And um, so, you know, he follows up a few years later in 1950. He made uh, another film noir classic, Sunset Boulevard, which is fantastic. I'm skimming over Double Indemnity and Sunset Boulevard because I'll be talking about these in my film noir marathon. Uh, but in 1951, he made... Ace in the Hole, starring Kirk Douglas as Chuck Tatum, a frustrated former big city journalist now stuck working for an Albuquerque newspaper. He exploits a story about a man trapped in a cave to rekindle his career, but the situation quickly escalates into an out-of-control circus. Now, moving forward, in 1955, he made the Marilyn Monroe vehicle The Seven-Year Itch, which follows a faithful husband whose family goes away for the summer. And, uh, you know, his overactive imagination is tempted by a beautiful neighbor. Uh, this was also kind of a just a, a fun movie people really enjoy. But four years later, he makes one that kind of trumps it a lot because uh, he ends up he ends the decade of the 1950s with a bang. Some like it hot. The classic stars uh, Marilyn Monroe again as well as two leading men, Tony Curtis and Jack Lemmon, who witness a mob hit and flee the state in an all-female band disguised as women. Uh, but things get very complicated very quickly. Now, before we get to the apartment, because that's the next movie he did, I think it's also yes. important to look at some of the themes in the history of the time, like mm -hmm. the Motion Picture Production Code, which was active from 1934 to 1966. Now, this plays a role in both the movies I just recently talked about uh, but the apartment as well, because in the early to mid-50s, TVs were becoming commonplace in most American households, and people thought, why, go to the th why would I go to the theater to see a Western when I can watch one from home? Now, I say Western because one in four movies at the time were Westerns, but this was an excuse for any genre, you know. So 
In order for Hollywood to make money, because it is a capitalist enterprise, the Motion Picture Association of America, or the MPAA, became more lax in the 1950s in order to allow for more films to be released that could draw money. Now, by the end of the 1950s, filmmakers like Billy Wilder would be allowed to make films with cross-dressing leads, like Some Like It Hot, a film that would never have been made a decade earlier. But before free love became a part of the counterculture of the time, the 1950s were a time of, for the heterosexual nuclear family that lived by a common moral fiber. Now, this is bullshit, of course, but it is how the culture liked to project itself as a God-fearing moral people. Yet Wilder makes a film in 1960 about big company executives who essentially rent out a lower-level worker's apartment so they can be unfaithful to their wives. This is a wild notion for the time, Joe. Yes. And, you know, no one, uh, no one that would, at the time, would probably be shocked uh, in theory because this was, of course, you know, happening in the 50s, but that's not how the culture projected itself. So the apartment... Uh, was a pretty big deal. Now, uh, Wilder was undoubtedly, I will argue, to the death a master, but he died March 27th, 2002, which is the day that this episode drops. It will be 19 years ago. And uh, though he made many more films after The Apartment, The Apartment is the film we're here to talk about in memory of the late, great Billy Wilder. So my setup for you, Joe. As I alluded to before, The Apartment stars Jack Lemmon as C.C. Baxter, the poor sap who secretly rents out his apartment to his bosses. Shirley MacLaine uh, plays Fran, a sad elevator attendant who has un uh, unfortunately fallen in love with the biggest executive in the group, Jeff D. Sheldrake, played by Fred McMurray. Baxter is put into a very serious position where he has to care for Fran, but this only makes him fall in love with her. The problem is Baxter has been renting his apartment to his bosses uh, to position himself for a job promotion. Should he support Fran and try to win her over, or should he support the top executive so he can guarantee his promotion? Now, The Love Triangle is perfectly written by co-writers Wilder and IAL Diamond. The apartment essentially created what we now know as the cliché template for most romantic comedies. For example, Boy Meets Girl, traditionally speaking. Uh, you know, they fall in love, things are great, an inciting incident occurs, girl breaks up with boy, boy performs an exhibition of love, and then they end up together. But the appointment doesn't follow that exactly. Everything that happens is not a part of a larger cliche or template. It has a purpose, exactly how it should be. Every scene matters, Joe. I would argue every scene matters. And the thing with this is... Uh, it's developed. Remember when we use that word sometimes, and usually it's yeah. negative toward movies. Mm -hmm. This, this, every scene matters because they are developed. Every there are all kinds of comedy throwbacks to something earlier in the film because it is uh, told in such a way. So, the film is not interested in forced plot points. It weaves in and out of characters' emotions and conflicts and comes together to create what I would call the best traditional romantic comedy ever made, and it's currently. My number five, my number nine favorite film on my top 100 favorite films of all time, Joe, just to give yeah. you some context. So, Joe, are you going to disappoint me and talk about <laughs> something like how the ending is very much of its time and seems to conclude too quickly or something along those lines? Or do you also find this to be a true 60s masterpiece in the pinnacle of its genre? Of course, 
you may fall between those two extremes, but you have to tell us, Joe, where do yeah, you fall? Yeah. Oh, I'm going to disappoint you. <laughs> um, you know, I, I watched this maybe through a modern, maybe through a modern lens through, you know, through the, you know, through a modern eye and this whole movie, I kept thinking what irredeemable dicks, of course, Sheldrake is, but also Baxter as well was completely horrible to her for most of them. Now he loved her, but he was still a dick most of the movie. Like his his motivation most of the film is, I'm going to, you know, like like okay, the set the setup there is what my my bosses are are using my apartment to bang women, whatever, you know. Okay, that's you know, and he he had some moral issues with that. You can see it first, but as the film goes along, he continually like at, much like the rest of the much like the rest of the characters. Um, uh, again, not not to the degree Sheldrake does, but he you know he gaslights her at times. He he stopped at one point. Okay, so she attempted suicide at his house. Okay, yeah, Shirley something I definitely want to get into. But go ahead. Yeah. She attempts suicide at his house. Um, I don't know whether she noticed, because the, you know the the big thing is like she sees the prescription bottle. Now, did she see Baxter's name on that and realize this was his place? Because when she wakes up later, she's like, "Why are you here?" But I thought that was supposed to be like a reveal at the time. But so you know, he anyway. She she attempts suicide. Doctor comes. It's this big frantic thing, and he immediately is like, no, no, you don't need to go to the hospital. No, 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 no. Don't worry about it. Just stay here. And his motivation is I don't want my boss to get in trouble because that means I'm going to get in trouble. So, and this isn't even like a, he doesn't have seem to have much issue with that. And, and he's like, no, you can't call your sister. No, you can't, you know, you can't call your brother-in-law. Hold on. Go ahead. Hold on. Okay. First <laughs> off, McLean is left high and dry, just to give some context to what you're talking about, because I was going to get into this later, but we might as well set this up real quick. McLean sure, is sure. left high and dry by Baxter's at Baxter's apartment uh, by one of the top executives. I've kind of already spoiled who it is, but it doesn't matter. So, you know, she decides to attempt suicide by taking a bunch of Baxter's pills. Now, I've always been led to believe she doesn't really pay attention to that. She just grabs a bottle of prescription drugs. But you know what? Maybe. I'm not sure. So... When Baxter, you know, comes home, he finds her motionless. Mind you, Baxter has no idea up to this point that right. uh, McLean's Fran is involved with any of the executives. He has a well, big crush well, on her. Minute. Go ahead. Well, wait a minute, because he does he does see the mirror earlier on. So I think he does. Wait, know you're right. At this point, yeah, yeah. Because uh, he there was a, he finds a broken mirror and takes it back to Sheldrake. All he knows is Sheldrake has a woman over, right? Correct. Oh, she left her compact. And and then later on he takes it to he's like oh it's broken I didn't do that he's like yeah whatever I don't care so then later at the Christmas party there right so like he he picks he up kinda, on it. He yes knows, he doesn't know she's still there right that's okay, what sorry. I meant sorry no 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 that's a good clarification because I was yeah. I was not wording that correctly so you got it right, right. so uh, you know this sequence the sequence kind of uh, blows Baxter's mind whenever he comes in he finds her this girl that he's like really into right this woman yeah. uh, and. Not only, you know, basically he, this is what I was referring to earlier where he has to, where he starts to kind of take care of her. Now, one of his, one of his neighbors is a doctor, a physician, 
And um, because this is all a secret that he lets all of his bosses use his apartment, um, the doctor neighbor thinks that he is just a complete womanizer and sex fiend, okay? Which, again, is wild for that time. Um, For for something during the motion picture production code, that's kind of wild to me, Uh, especially because he's never truly reprimanded for that behavior, even though that would be seen as like a frowned upon behavior, right? So... I mean, they, they, of course, chastise him, but... Right, so he, does that, yeah, yeah, yeah. So here's the thing, Joe, based on what you were saying. Uh-huh. My, my retort to this, I didn't actually expect to interrupt you, but apparently I did. <laughs> That's okay. This, so this takes a large portion of the middle of the movie, right? Mm-hmm. This is like a huge transitional moment, where at the beginning, he's Baxter's 100% for this promotion. That's the whole, that is his whole motivation in life. Uh-huh. everything he does. He never seems like a bad guy, right? But he's uh-huh. allowing these bad things to happen. Quote, yeah. unquote, bad. Like, the film definitely makes you feel like these things are, like, bad things, right? Which, right. of course, you know, I'm not a supporter of infidelity. So, you know, right. we can argue it's a bad thing, I guess. So here's the thing. Uh, up to that point, he never likes it, of course, uh-huh. but he's doing it for the job. So he's still a part of this bad group. Then yeah. he finds this woman that he's been trying to win over in the elevator at parties, like everything. And he finds her in his apartment, having been essentially used by one of the executives. And this is the point in the film where he is challenged by this, right? Mm -hmm. So does, like I set it up, does he decide to go with Fran and essentially support her and back her up? Or does he decide to go with the top executive to secure his promotion? And this is essentially the kind of inner conflict that his character deals with for the remainder of the film. So I don't necessarily see this as Baxter's being an asshole. This is a character development of conflict where he's, yes, he is doing asshole things because he's not just saying like, no, you can't call your sister. He's trying to be like, no, 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 like, you're okay. Like, you're fine. Like, you know, he's like trying to play it like in a funny kind of, uh, peripheral way so that he's not spoiling you know the right. top execs reputation he's like trying to play both sides right yeah, so yeah. how do you so you're you're comparing him to the other guys a bit and calling him an asshole whereas right. i see this as a moment of character conflict where right. he's trying to decide which side he's on which maybe for us would be like well no shit you side with right. the woman that just tried to kill herself over this guy right but you know, this is also the guy that straight up told her, "Hey, I looked up your social security number." Yes, that's another thing I wanted. Yeah, that's another thing I wanted to. I wanted to talk about. That is a yeah. very different time thing. I agree. Yeah. That's another kind of. It even uh, takes me aback. I laugh at it every time, but not for the reasons I think they want me to. Because <laughs> right. it's yeah, so yeah. weird. But just to give everyone an ex- some background, yeah. so Joe can take over here because yeah, I did yeah, it. I, I probably jumped the gun a little bit. But, well, hold on. But let, let me just well, set this up go. real quick, and then I'll let you go. Is okay. is uh, Baxter is walking Fran down, you know, down a, a sidewalk or whatever, and they're walking out of work, and uh, he just starts talking to her, and he goes, he says something about her personal life. She goes, "How do you know that?" And he's like. I just looked up because he works for like an what is it? An, I forget now. An, an insurance. I was about company. to say an insurance guy. Yeah, that's yeah. what I thought. Yeah. So, um, anyways, he. Uh, I watched this recently. I didn't watch it like yesterday. I watched it recently. So, uh, so I'm glad you're gonna you're gonna help me uh, 
come up with some of these specifics. But anyways, yeah, yeah. he um uh yeah, he's just like, yeah, I looked up your account and found your social security number. That's right. like super creepy. They play it yeah. off like a non-issue. Like at the time that was nothing. Now we have security fraud and like all of these right. crazy things that makes that yeah. seem so terrible. Um, yeah. but that's a film history thing. But go ahead, yeah. continue. Well, well, I was gonna say it's not it's not even only that. It's like he lists off these things that he knows about her. It's like he's like, Oh, I know your name, your address, your height, your weight, your social security number. And I'm like, man. And you know, and and I I'll I will give that in Hollywood terms, certainly of that time, and, and even to a degree. And you know, for years to come, that kind of like an obsessiveness about someone is is often played in, as a as either a joke or as a like, wow, he must really like her if he's going to all that. You know, like like later on, we you know, I think I think in a modern day, of course, we would certainly look at that and go, it's uh, a bit too much, dude. Back up a little bit, <laughs> yeah. but. Like for the, t I'll, I'll even, I'll even forgive that and be like, yeah, that's fine. You know, like, like it's, it's slightly creepy. You shouldn't know her social security <laughs> number maybe, but. It's super know, creepy, like, man. That, that's, a, that's definitely a trope of the time. I, 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 I concede to this though. It, that's like the creepiest moment in the film to me. Like that's super weird. Um, you know, it, the only way it'd be creepier is if whenever she's passed out after trying to attempt suicide, if he was like being weird with her or something yeah, like yeah. that's that's like that would be the step like a tier above. Right. Like yeah. it is super weird that he would flex that kind of power. Like there are some serious issues that we could point out today about how that's like definitely an evasion of her privacy. And yeah. Um, it's yeah, it's pretty terrible. But I do want to say this, though. <clears throat> the film is also throughout there are um it's not slapstick at all but there are these almost slapsticky like very like uh blatant comedy overtures mm -hmm. throughout the entire film whether it's the executives um you know who call him buddy boy and each yeah. of them have their very distinct almost like you know how the three stooges have like a very distinct personalities each of them like each yeah. of the executives have their own like very specific like the one guy has like a really high voice like, what do you yeah. mean? You know, like he always does like a super duper high voice. And yeah, yeah. Um, and so each like there is that element. So every time something weird like this happened, and again, I don't believe it was the intention of the filmmaker at the time, nor do I care about the intentions of the filmmaker, really. However, uh, all of these things uh, add up for me in terms of the context of kind of the genre that Wilder's playing with here. Uh-huh. I feel like I'm getting ahead of us now. I want you to continue because I did interrupt yeah. you because I just I could <laughs> yeah, not let this yeah, injustice. I, uh, no, I'm just kidding. Go ahead. No, no, I no, I, I do want to. Um, I do want to finish up the the suicide. You know that whole part. Now that we have context, go for it. Yeah, yeah. So, so being there, my you know my thought was like, okay, I get he wants to protect his job. Or his, you know, the 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 thing he's built. So so the idea is because, and this is the con, and I like this conflict actually. I thought this was a fun. This was fun as a conflict, is that he he lends the, his apartment out to these guys, and they're all promising, hey, you know, the numbers are coming for the month, and we're going to put you at the top, and you're in you're in line for this promotion, if you you know, and and so he you know he does things like put himself out greatly. Like at one point, a guy calls him, and he's in bed asleep. And he has taken a sleeping pill, I believe he said. And the guy's like, hey, come on, I got this girl. And she looks like Marilyn Monroe. And 
I'm never gonna have this chance again. And he's like, he's like, dude, I'm in bed. And he's like, we only need, we only need 45 minutes. Come on, come on. And, and he finally, you know, he finally agrees to, he acquiesces and, um, you know, and, and he ends up like, just like standing outside the building while they, you know, while they're going in and it's just like, you know, so obviously he's, he's putting himself out greatly. He's a pushover. Yeah. And he's putting it and he's using his kind of oddly using his personal life to, um, to get ahead professionally. Right. So he's, this is, you know, he, he talks about all of his work, but then he's like, you know, I'm not going to be very effective at work. If I'm, if I've got to be, you know, standing outside in the cold half the night, or I've got to go somewhere until to late in the night, every night, I got to get sleep. And they're like, yeah, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Just, you know, here, just come on, come on. And so he does this and he gets, catches a cold the next day. And of course, then he gets the promotion and then he's in line for very quickly another promotion and here's what he's trying to save at this point. And my 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 issue there was, you know, like this is the girl that he he's been crushing on the whole movie. Also, she's the, the elevator operator in the in the uh, building, and he, you know, and they have their little cute banter back and forth. And you know, there you know, there's all these little you know little uh, you know you know cutesy moments they have, and then like she's in his bed, literally dying. And and of course, there's the whole sequence where he has brought this other woman home and trying to drown his sorrows. Right, he he gets drunk and meets this other woman, and he's bringing this other woman to his apartment. Then sees um, Fran and you know had, who has stayed after you know. So he le- essentially he leaves so that Sheldrake and Fran can do their thing. And Sheldrake leaves, Fran stays, and then and then uh, Baxter comes in with this new girl not knowing that Fran not only stayed, but, you know, emptied her, you know, his sleeping pills, you know, emptied the entire bottle um, and took them all. So this moment, and, and I'm trying to even figure out at that moment, was that moment supposed to be funny where, where the, the, this other woman is, is there and he, you know, he's frantic, right? Baxter is frantic. Oh my gosh, I, who knows what, you know, I don't know what she's done. She's not responding. I got to get the doctor. And she's running back and forth. And there's this whole moment even where she's like, my husband is, my husband is in Cuba and, and I'm going to tell him what happened here. And he's going to come back and punch you in the face. You know, and it's like this whole, like, I, I think it's supposed to be cute, kind of cutesy and comic, but he's pushing her out the door. And so I was, I kind of struggled with that. Well, <clears throat> I want to talk about a couple of things okay. that you just brought up here. The first thing is whenever Jack Lemon has a cold, just a random thing real quick. Can anybody yes. have a cold better than Jack Lemon? I mean, that dude dancing. talks yeah. like he has a cold. Yeah. What's happening? Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. Also, it should, it's very important to understand that I think Shirley MacLaine is a babe at that time, and she was my screen crush uh, from that era <laughs> for like many years. Uh, still is really, but um, anyway. So this this sequence. Th- think about the writing real quick, okay? So you just brought up that she she goes and gets these sleeping pills and just. Right. Dunks him at the very beginning of the film when he gets kicked out of his house when he's already asleep, having taken right. one of those same sleeping pills. Everything yeah. is perfectly foreshadowed and written throughout, and it comes yeah. off as like a non thing, like you don't think about it until sure. it's made important. Now, I want to yeah. clarify this before I get into directly what you said. This is why I think the writing is absolutely perfect. There's a one for one across the entire script. But it's written subtly enough that it's not like 
close up on the bottle at the beginning, like this is going to be a big deal, you know, like we get now, (laughs) like everything has to be blatantly obvious that this is going to come back. And it just, it telegraphs way too much. You know, this, this film actually exercises some for a movie that's so flamboyant in so many ways, there's some reserve and some uh, subtlety involved in terms of how it's written and, and portrayed. And, in terms of the comedy, another thing to understand, I don't know how many Billy Wilder movies you've seen, nor am I going to out you on that. You you know. Right. But however many you've seen, you know, I've seen quite a few. And one thing that he does from the 40s all the way into the 70s, I don't think I saw anything more recent than that. Um, but, uh, you know, he is all about kind of controversial material um, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, employing certain levels of kind of like darkly comic things, but they're not dark comedy in the way that like Chaplin would do in the fifties with like Monsieur Verdoux where, you know, he's no longer the tramp. He's this kind of, uh, not wealthy man trying to act like a wealthy man so he can marry all of these rich women and kill them and take their money. (laughs) Like that's like dark comedy. You know what I mean? Uh, Monsieur Verdoux is great. Or like the great dictator by Chaplin, you know, where he's actually playing a Hitler like character in 1940. Like, that's hard, dark comedy, okay? But with with Wilder, he, he really skirts this line. Like, he kind of walks this line where uh, he will juxtapose situations a lot of times, you know, one of which is funny. In this case, him bringing the woman home. Um, and then one that is not, right? Mm-hmm. So, yes, I would say yes, The him kicking out the woman is meant to be funny at first. Yeah. She continues being this like very kind of flamboyant character. You know, she has this like really high kind of like obnoxious voice, right? And she's just yeah. like uh, a, a very comedic character. But like that comedy is juxtaposed with the seriousness that mm-hmm. you and I, as the spectator, is watching. Yeah. Like when you see your body in his in his bed, at that moment you're like, "Oh fuck!" Like right. what just happened? This yeah. is insane. How's he going to get out of this? Like, that was my... When I saw it, I was edge of my seat. <laughs> yeah. Like, the first... I can't stress enough how incredible of a first experience I had watching this movie. Uh, and I watched it on my own. We, we had watched Some Like It Hot in class mm-hmm. when I was an undergrad. And so I started seeking out more of his movies. And, um, and this was one of them. Uh, but anyways, so... Uh, that that's pretty much how how I see it. Sorry, that was a roundabout way to get there, but oh, I, okay. I see it as like yes, it is supposed to be funny, but I think you as the spectator at that point, it that switch flips, and the characters are still consistent, but the tone of the scene flips to like no wait, this isn't funny anymore. But it would also right. be fucking weird if he brings this woman home and it's like funny, and then he sees her. And then it's like super serious. Do you get what I'm saying? Like the characters remain consistent, but the tone switches because he's no longer like funny after she leaves. Do you get what I mean? Like he like immediately starts to like, I think he starts like kind of like patting her face and stuff and like trying to, again, I watched this like a month ago, but like, um, the doctor just slaps the shit out of her. That's right. Well, yeah, because he, he runs over. Yeah, he runs over and gets the doctor. That's right. Yeah. And yeah. and the thing is, like, even that scene is great, I think, because like he he like the doctor's like this very Jewish guy, you know, like yeah, just yeah. like caricature Jewish guy almost. But that scene, again, you can take him a bit more seriously, right? Even whenever he's talking about like 
you know, you got to be a mensch, you know, like like a real man, you know, and all of this stuff. And I love like part of that conflict is great because Baxter never breaks. He still never outs his execs, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, so it's like he's taking the blunt end of this kind of criticism by this wonderful guy that just has been working all day and just like, he just like makes help him, you know, like, like this doctor goes out of his way off the clock to just like help this woman, you know? And like, I, but that's also a pivotal moment where the character shifts, I think, because it's after that moment that Baxter really starts contemplating like what I'm doing is wrong. Do you get what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Uh, can you can yeah. go? I, I want to pass this off to you now. I want to let you yeah, like yeah. talk about that, but that's kind of yeah, my interpretation. Sure. Yeah, I yeah I I did uh, I just I felt like I did I felt like at that moment he's still to a degree which you know which maybe is a conceit of the film he's still hiding the like he's still concerned his still chief concern is. I mean, obviously it's like, there's this woman who might be dying in my bedroom, but it's also like, I still can't tell people this rather innocuous thing that's going on. Like, like it's maybe people will look down on me, but like, I'm not going to jail because of it. You know, yeah. it's like, this is like, somebody's going to think less of me if I, if I tell them what happened here. And and so, and he even, even continues doing that with the doctor. Right. And he, yeah. you know, the doctor's like, well, what happened to her? It's like, he like, what's she doing here? Why are there two, why are there two women here? And, you know, he could be like, you know, it's a long story. I just, just understand that. I don't know why she's here. It's like, it seemed like he unnecessarily, to me, he unnecessarily took that on as a way of kind of furthering the plot, you well, know, so, well, he had to keep, that, he had to keep that, that secret, you know, and, and even, and even with her being, you know, almost dead, I'm like, that's that crap's gonna go out the window and be like who like in a in a, in a real circumstance that's probably gonna happen again and it's a conceit of the movie which you know which pulled me out and was like it it just comes off as dickish to me at that point where I'm like you're maybe you just say forget all that let's just worry about fixing this yeah let's take you to the hospital yeah let's you know let's call your sister I'm not now now at one point she wants to call Sheldrake's wife. I can, I at least see why I'm like, okay, there's nothing to be gained from that right now, you know, because, you know, Christmas day, let's call, let's call his wife and let him know that, you know, now, you know, that, that's the, I can, I can at least see him going, uh, maybe you should wait a while to do that. You know, that's, if that's what you're going to do, let's do that later, but let's worry about your health right now. (laughs) But, but he's, I don't want to say completely unconcerned about her health, but there are other things that are at least equally important to him in that moment. Yeah, that, that's what that's what just rubbed me the wrong way about it. Yeah, I, I think the the separation here between you and me is I don't think that that Baxter had any interest in confronting the complexity of the situation until after the doctor leaves and especially yeah. after Fran is picked right. up by her sister and brother brother in law. Yeah. Um, because prior to that, it's just a secret. Like he's just yeah. keeping a secret because he's a pushover. Right. It's not because like, I don't even believe Baxter ever set this thing up. I think uh-huh. the execs were like, Oh, you live out there. Now this is pure. Uh, yeah. What? Like this doesn't matter. Cause we don't know. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, like based on the characters, 
it never seems like Jack Lemmon liked this thing, this arrangement. Oh, no. It seems yeah. like the executives at one point were probably just like, oh, you live in like downtown or whatever. Oh, cool. Yeah. Like, hey, why don't you give me a key and like get out of there for a few minutes so I can see this, you know, my 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 guma as the gangster movies would teach me, you know. And so uh, like he's just a pushover. It doesn't now that doesn't that does not justify his actions. So please understand, I'm not doing that. Yeah, uh-huh. uh, but he's just a pushover. That's like the whole point, <laughs> like the so, thing. So he's trying to keep it a secret because he doesn't mm-hmm. want to upset people. He doesn't want to hurt anybody. He's trying to right. save all parties. Uh, uh-huh. And it's not until the doctor chastises him, right? Yeah. After uh-huh. accepting the responsibility. Again, at this point, it's all a secret to him. He's not mm-hmm. thinking about the greater things because he's trying to deal with the situation at hand. Once the situation mm-hmm. concludes... Now he's struggling with the choice mm-hmm. that I said, which yeah. is, well, shit, now who do I, like, do I stand up to these exec guys? Like, and he starts yeah. contemplating. Now he doesn't change then. The conflict mm-hmm. is still there. He's still dealing right. with the decision. Mm-hmm. I don't believe right. prior to that was he dealing with the situation or the, the decision. I don't think yeah. the decision needed to be made for him in his mind at that point. I think it was just a secret. Are you are you right. getting the distinction that I'm making, whether you yes. agree or not? Yes, I yeah, I do. I just I just feel like like as a as a as a person as a human being, you just are like screw all that at this point. Yeah, like, this is important right now. Like this is maybe okay. It's going to hurt their reputation, whatever. You know, even and even in the later on stuff where when he's you know when he's calling Sheldrake, I'm you know like that that is you know that all was you know to me was fine. You know, and he's. And he's lying to her, you know, later on where he's calling Sheldrake and he's like, look, dude, she almost died. And he's like, ah, whatever. I don't care. It's not my problem. We go take care of, you know, like that. That's where he starts to, to me, where he branches off. And I'm like, okay, but I'm still like at that moment, it's gotta be, there's gotta be, it's gotta be more important than, but, than this bit. Here, and, and good. There's like, to me, like everything else is okay. I just can't, I can't take you know i can't get out of that moment and be like no this is like this moment's not this there's nothing okay about that yeah there's, you, like there's nothing okay about him like you know you know and i know she's not gonna die you know at that point like the doctor's like yeah she's, she's but it's bad enough that she's gonna be at his house for a couple of days i'm like you know let's like he i, I think he could have at least have been written in a somewhat more sensitive way you know in a in a more I don't. I don't know. He maybe give him a conflict there at least instead of because there's so much conflict, Joe. Right? Yeah, but but that's a quick. But that's such a quick moment, right? Like she's like, he gets up. He's like, "What are you doing? Oh, I gotta go to the hospital." He's like, "No, you don't need to go to the hospital. You're fine." And she's like, "I need to call my sister. She's worried about me." He's like, "No, I don't need to do that. Ah, your sister. She'll be fine." You know. And I'm like, "How about you just be like, hey?" I met my friends. Like he, like he doesn't. He interrogates her, right? And, and interrogate. What are you going to say? Well, what about this? What about this? What about this? And she just answers it. She's like, "I'm just." A, a friend. And it's like, "Okay, well, call and make your call, and and then you know, lay back down and be cool." That I, I'm like, that wouldn't have hurt anything. It wouldn't have hurt, you know, because I, I know he's worried about like the cops are going to come or something, and there's going to be this whole ugly incident and then you know it's maybe it's gonna i don't know maybe it's gonna be in the news and be a big scandal or something but i that's not the the feeling that i got that was never conveyed and and so i was just like 
you know. But wait, what wasn't conveyed? Which part of that wasn't? The 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 that maybe that was maybe there were some larger stakes to it than that. Maybe and you know maybe in 1960, if if you know executives at a, a company were having extramarital affairs, you know, as a I mean, this is clearly like a like a ring, right? Like they're this is a group of guys who are serially doing this. Yes. You know, this maybe maybe that's going to be a huge scandal. Maybe you know, and I'm saying you know, looking through today's lens, if that happened, nobody's going to care, right? Maybe in 1960, that's going to be a major news scandal. You know, that's going to hit the newspapers or something. That you know, the heads of this big time insurance company have been you know sleeping with women. I don't know. I'm and I'm speculating, and I'm like, if if we had, and maybe that was clear. Maybe that would have been clear at the time. But for me, again, viewing it through the lens I'm viewing it through, I'm like, who, you know, okay, who cares about that a whole lot? Unless it's going to be something. If it's going to be something huge, then I'm like, maybe. But otherwise, I'm like, this doesn't seem like a big enough deal. But tell me this though: do, do you need to like? a protagonist in a movie like do you need to be able to relate to that person well i i think you need to i think you need to have some point of relation with them you need to be i mean you don't have to always agree with the things they do you can look at them and go this is a mistake but i don't think that moment is played as that big of a mistake it's not played as a mistake that much if if at all it's it's more just like this is another moment this is a moment he's got to get out of he's got to weasel out of this moment to get to the next moment where his where now he can stop and think about what he's doing and, and then make his change right like like every like in in a thousand comedies like this there are people where you're going dude your approach is all wrong and we and we know as viewers their approach is all wrong <clears throat> but it's not it's not something that huge right like there there aren't that many movies where a guy is a is an ass to women and then it's just like oh, maybe I shouldn't be an ass anymore and now I'm going to be a good now I'm a now I'm a good potential mate for this for this female character, <laughs> you know it's it's always a uh, it's it's always more of a a good you know it's the good guy who's got one thing wrong you know he's got one thing wrong to his approach and once he fixes that he's going to be a good catch. So and, so tell me this, I'm, I know that you like there will be blood. Did you even like The Master? Did you like Uncut Gems? Did you like these movies where these are unequivocally bad Mm -hmm. people? Okay. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And and yet, I don't believe the film particularly passes on a moral judgment on them. Right. So, I guess I guess the difference between you and I with this is I'm not trying to relate or pass judgment on Jack Lemmon in particular, unless the film was literally encouraging like a misogynist kind of like take your job over uh over this person's health which i don't believe it is i think the film kind of does a very good job at not directly condemning jack lemon's baxter but by having the conflict that's inside of him where he's mm-hmm. constantly trying to make sure that she's okay and taken care of, but he is right. also doing the thing that you and I would never do because we'd right. be like, f- like you know, fuck mm-hmm. Sheldrake, you're going to right. the hospital. <laughs> right. And yeah. ev- the whole, I'm going to get fired and I probably won't have this apartment much longer, but you know what, I'm going to take care of you. That's where you and I would be. 
right? Yeah. yeah. Um, but I guess my thing is, and I don't mean to put this on you. You're welcome to comment on this. Sure, I don't sure. mean to assume you would be this way. But yeah. I don't need to like a character or have a character do what I would do to understand that in terms of the writing and the structure and the conflict that mm -hmm. this is the perfect way in my view right. to kind of develop something that quite frankly should not be made in the time like that movie. Right. I mean, of course, you know, it's, it's a movie like who's afraid of Virginia Wolf that really just puts the nail in the coffin of, of, yeah. um, of the motion picture production code. But while there was like a huge, helper to that which i have to give yeah. him credit because i hated that uh thing it's pure censorship by the government essentially so uh this dude's like making crazy shit so you know thinking of it historically uh i get why certain aspects are there i get why you know they, they can't make it too serious because if mm -hmm. it's too serious and if you're dealing with suicide and shit motion right. picture like Hayes is not going to let that happen right never going to happen yeah. And then, uh, which does not justify it. I'm just sure. just talking about historically here. Sure, um, sure. But then I think about, like, every beat of this movie, like, yeah. every single one from the beginning, showing how much of a pushover Baxter is, showing his crush on uh, Fran, which he never really develops into anything beyond that until the moment that we've kind of fixated on, which is the suicide. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, he's doing, as you put, like the cutesy banter, which I think is perfect uh, oh, yeah, in the right. elevator and um, and at the at the party, which he is trying to get her to go on a date with him. But they don't yeah. have like a relationship. He just sees her every day at work to the point of he notices when she's not there. Right. Right. Um, and uh, so you see him as this pushover. You they develop uh, Fran as the person essentially that. It starts off with her being this wisecracking, I can take on any guy. You know, yeah. she even talks about, like, I'm going to sock you, asshole, if you talk yeah. to me that way kind of a thing. Well, yeah, the, the guy slapped her on the ass. Yeah, on the way yeah. <laughs> which is terrible. You know what I mean? Right. Um, yeah. But then, like, you know, you get to the party, and she, like, you start to actually peel back these layers and this facade, yeah. and she's, like, this really sad character, basically, yeah. you know, who doesn't really know what she wants because she loves this person that she really quote unquote can't love. Right. Or, yeah. or she shouldn't. Right. Um, and you know, Baxter is this guy that as just take, this isn't fair, but take away all of these asshole things, right. That right. he's yeah. basically uh, accompanied to by proxy because he's a pushover again, does not justify it. He is a part of this, infidelity yeah. ring right like i'm not trying to give him any yeah. kind of a pass yeah but his personality uh, away from that he, he's just he's a dude that likes to eat his tv dinner watching some westerns with some stars in it mm -hmm. <laughs> like he he's a man yeah, of he simple wants to watch oh uh, what does he want no he he actually turns away from the westerns he wants to watch um there was some i can't remember what it was it was some story but it had all these stars in it and then he like he has which I thought was a very cool moment where he had, he has this, I guess, quasi remote control, right? Like that's sitting next to him on the table. Yeah. And it's like, turns the dial. Like, like, like it's, a, it's, I think it's corded. Yeah. He, he flips it and he goes to the Western and it's just like, uh, well, he, he turns the channel and it's another Western. He's like, uh, but, but the, um, that one, that was a good moment because it's, he wants to watch this, whatever. I can't remember what it's called, but it has a thousand stars in it. And it's like, 
after these messages. And then the, they go through the thing. And then, and I even wrote down the, the second one because he gets all the way around the dial, which by the way, again, for the time was like four or five channels, yeah, yeah, right? Just like a few channels. Yeah. Yeah. And then he gets back and it's like, now it's time for blah, 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 starring all of these, you know, like, and they go through the list and then it's like, after these messages and the guy is like, it goes back to the, the same narrator and he's like, yeah. do you have wobbly dentures? And he just like, <laughs> yeah, he just drops his fork and, and like, yeah, he's done. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah. What like that? That's like, yeah, that's just for me. And it's part of the reason that I love like those 70s and 80s, but those 70s like Woody Allen movies, which is a whole can of worms we'll get into in another episode. But I mean, like just talking about the films, the reason that I love those is because you'll take these very old school type comedy routines, which that is right. It's a very old school of the time, very 50s comedy thing to do. Um, where he just gets fed up because there are so, I mean, it's a stand up. It's like yeah. a stand up, uh, yeah. what do you call it? Like a bit, right? Where, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like someone could, ex- that's visually told, but it's like you could tell that joke as like a stand up joke about yeah. like how advertisements are taking over everything, which we mm-hmm. can understand even today. Because every time you watch a goddamn YouTube episode, you have to watch like 40 fucking commercials. Here yeah, I am, really. first world problems, let's, but still. Can we just end that already? Because that's. <laughs> I hate that. Like a five minute video and I get four freaking interludes of, of advertisements. Yeah. yeah. You know, I'm okay with the first two. Give me the right. two at the front. Why you have right. to be peppered throughout for five minutes? Yeah. Yeah. Really? Anyways. Uh, anyways. So, so, uh, yeah, I, dude, yeah, it's, man, it's a shame. I'm sorry uh, that you feel the way you do because because well, well, just real quick, if you look at if you make a beat sheet of this movie, I can't think of how it would be better written. And and, and I, I guess like like writing doesn't happen like that anymore. And I feel like today all we get are like shit that you can guess what's going to happen early on. Yeah. And if even if they even if they evade your guess, right, and they somehow skirt around it and give you something different, it's still yeah. never that interesting. And this film right. actually takes something that watching it in 2021, we have a whole just there's I mean, just choose from the gamut of movies uh, mm-hmm. that would be considered a romantic comedy. Uh, now, right. I do like one romantic comedy that I would consider romantic comedy better than The Apartment. I won't say what that is yet. One day, you and I will talk about it. Um, but uh-huh. it's I, I would call it an anti-love story, but I still put it in the romantic comedy. But as far as traditional romantic comedies go, you're You've Got Males, you're When Harry Met Sally's, you're whatever, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Uh, uh, Sleepless in Seattle, we'll throw that in there. You, you sure. have all of those traditional ones. The Apartment really kickstarts this kind of, um, that specific kind of story, I guess, that, that, um, that template, if you will. But again, every single moment matters every beat the first time you see the doctor questioning him about man you were making a lot of noise in there you having a party you know and he's emptying like 40 bottles out of his you know house and the doctor's like you better watch out or your you know your liver is gonna die or you know or whatever you know like it's just the way that the duality of baxter's character based on him it just yeah. goes back to kind of what you were saying about why he covers it up so much because he's in so yeah. deep to the point of if Sheldrake gets caught, he's an accomplice to this. Like this yeah. really is like this thing of like, mm-hmm. 
you know, I truly believe I, and I'm not even going to compare myself to Baxter because, of course, I'm not anything like Baxter, really. But, like, of course I would end up taking her to the hospital, but I would definitely, asshole or not, think my, (laughs) think through it. You know, like I would have to, like, figure out. How can I fix this, right? Yeah. Yeah, because it's, like, a very complex situation. And so even I might look like an asshole, even though I believe I would truly do the right thing in the end. And, of course, as most romantic comedies go, uh, it might take, you know, an hour and 45 minutes or whatever. Uh, but we we do see um, Baxter, you know, try try to make things right. And yeah. um, and so, yeah, I don't know, man. It's uh, I, I want to move on, but it's 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 a yeah, real shame yeah. that we have uh, a different view of this because I'll just argue it to the death. I want you to give me right. one more. If you have anything else to say, wrap wrap that part up. Well, no, yeah, no, I was I was actually going to say I, I, I think I've I think I've made my point about this, you know. And I, I think, uh, you know, there. I don't want to say I wholesale hated this movie because I didn't at all. Um, I, I, and I mostly look at this as, I mean, this movie won Best Picture in 1960. Yeah. So it, it's, it does things well, right? I, I, and I look at this a, a lot of ways as it's kind of interesting to see, you know, what constituted something that was groundbreaking to have groundbreak considered groundbreaking or or unique enough or um you know important enough that the way it covered things to win best picture in spite of that like today this move i think that i think those moments today would never they wouldn't make it you know they would they would switch it they would switch it to something else so i I'm, i feel like in a lot of ways that's what i feel like i'm like that was kind of an ass thing to do but I'm looking at it again through today's eyes. That's a little bit different. I think it's a little different, and it, maybe it's unfair in some ways. But I'm I'm just like she went through a lot. You know, uh, Fran's character went through a lot of crap, and and other female characters too, without getting without getting something back. You know, like without without a certain comeuppance. You know, but um, but again, I think I think we move past this and, and let's talk about other things because there, like I said, there. Are, any number of things I did really like about this. Well, you you did bring this up, and I'm going to segue this in for you. It did. Uh, it, it was nominated for best sound, best cinematography, black and white, which was actually like a separate thing. Um, yeah. Best actor in a supporting role, uh, best actress in a leading role, Shirley MacLaine. Best actor in a leading role, Jack Lemmon. So it was nominated, did not win, but nominated for those, and then it won best yeah. film editing, best art direction, set decoration for a black and white feature. Uh, best writing story and screenplay and uh, best director and best picture. So, I mean, this movie has, if you, if you need a movie with a lot of accolades that no matter yeah. how much, Decorated. yeah, no matter how much stock you put in the Academy Awards, mm-hmm. uh, this was a different time for the Academy Awards too. Not every, not all of the old Academy Award winners hold up in the same way, you know, but there mm-hmm. are a lot of them that you go back and watch movies from 1960 and yeah. I'll, I'll, and, and dude, I love stuff like Psycho. <laughs> I love like, like I can name a ton of movies from 1960, but none yeah. of them, none of them would beat this for me. It's like one of those rare years where, for me personally, it gets it right. Uh, yeah. And so I, I, I do want to get away from from that specific uh, sure. yeah. plot point, and I, I, want, I would like to talk a little bit about Jack Lemon real quick. I think yeah. a lot of people. 
today may not know who Jack Lemmon is, or they've probably seen him. Like if you look at a picture, but you would probably know him from maybe something like Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, or yeah. uh, something from probably the '90s, or like a the, super the old man movie. Yes, yeah. I was about to say like, or like where he's like a super old man. Um, yeah. And it reminds me of people when I was growing up. I never understood why people liked Jack Nicholson because mm-hmm. all I'd ever seen of him as a kid and an early teenager were like all the new movies that he did and not yeah. stuff like about Schmidt, like just like all the just kind of mediocre shit that he would do. And right. I knew yeah. him as the Joker, which I like him as the Joker. But that like I didn't understand why he was when people talked about him. It's like Jack Nicholson. It's like, why is he on? Same thing with De Niro. I didn't understand it at the time. Like, why do people like these guys? Because at that point, they were old guys. And as a young, you know, 14-year-old or something, I didn't get it. But then you go back and watch any of these guys in their prime. Pacino, any of them. And you're like, Mm -hmm. oh, shit. These guys are awesome. You know, Jack Nicholson, dude. Fucking watch The Shining. No matter how someone feels about that movie, what a wild, evolving performance by a guy. You know, Pacino name any movie, (laughs) (laughs) you know, I mean, there's just like so many great ones. And Uh so like with Jack Lemmon, man, if you go back to the fifties and sixties with this guy, Mm -hmm. wow. Like what great performances. He's always the, the slapstick comedy guy. Uh, Mm -hmm. I think in the apartment again, he gets, he gets a, a, a bit more of like a meaty performance. Whereas in some like at hot, you know, you have, uh, uh, Tony Curtis is like the, the, the straight guy and the, um, uh, Jack Lemmon's the comedy guy, right? You know, it's right. it's like uh, Martin and Lewis or something, and so yeah. they they have their thing. But man, I think he's so fantastic in this. H- how do you feel about Jack Lemmon specifically? I, I I mean, I love Jack Lemmon in general. Um, and and most of my most of my exposure to him has been later stuff. It was Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, was the um the Grumpy Old Men movies, um. And you know, and maybe a couple of things. He was in JFK. Um, you know that that's been mo- that kind of stuff has been most of mine. But he always stood out to me. Yeah. And he stands out here. And this movie has a lot of really good. I mean, Fred McMurray is really great. Jack Lemmon is terrific. Shirley MacLaine is really great. Um, and Ray Walston is great. So as, good. You know, yeah. He's so yeah, he's so good. Yeah, and he's the buddy boy guy. Yep. But um, but no, Jack. The the one now one thing that I, and I don't think this is his fault. The the opening narration, and and again maybe this is this is a trope of the time was a little bit stilted to me. It felt it just felt a little bit like it felt a little bit he's reading a card rather than he's now you know he's it's this you know this it's this opening salvo where you're you know you're meeting him and who he is. It's all about his characterization, right? He's like you know there's eight and let's see I wrote down the number. Um, it, you know th- this is a character thing, right? Where he says in New York. As of I don't know November first, nineteen fifty nine, or whatever the date was, there's eight million forty two thousand seven hundred eighty three people in New York, you know, and it's like, and and it's it's very, it's a little self conscious, and the way it's delivered is a you know is a little bit, it's not now it doesn't feel like I'm being talked to it feels like I'm being read to yeah but you know I'm like that's ah who cares it's you know tell me this what does it develop in Baxter well well it it introduces him number one in his job and who he is and it's the the exacting nature of his personality of who he is right is that you know he he doesn't say there's eight million people he says eight million forty two thousand seven hundred eighty three but it's not only because he's particular it's also because he's a square (laughs) like he's a he's a character that 
works so often because it also shows him staying late often and, and yeah. doing everything he can to get on top that he cares yeah. so much about it. It's not like he has a photographic memory. It's that right. he's done this so much. He knows yes. that number, but continue. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. And, and I, I, I felt like that was, but I, I think that was more than being anything bad about him. I think that's just of the time, right? I think they, at that time, they're not going to pay that much attention to it. Today, they take great pains to, you know, there's got to be personality and inflection in that, in those kind of moments. And I, I think that's just a trope. And I, and I don't want it to be, come off like I'm criticizing it too much, but it's something that stuck just a little bit. I was like, eh, but, but it's like, okay. But anyway, we, you know, we moved past it. Um, but no, but he was great for the most part, you know, and, um, you know, even that scene where, you know, where the, the woman is, um, where he's trying to push the woman out when, you know, when, when he's trying to bring the doctor in and he's just ignoring the woman, you can, <laughs> you just see that. Like you, you feel, you feel his franticness while he's got to ignore this woman. Who's, you know, just talking about the, just the dumbest, most unimportant stuff. Right. Like she's, you know, she's waiting to get lucky and he's like, no, get, you know, he's like, you gotta go, you gotta go, you gotta go. And and she's getting angry. He's like, yeah, 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 whatever, whatever, <laughs> you know. Whatever. Yeah. And I was like, this is all, this is all good stuff, you know. Um, and he's, you know, he's, I don't know, he's, he's terrific in it. That, that's, you know, that's what it all comes down to. He's, yeah. he's really good. Um, he's got a lot of good actors to play off of, and, um, I, you know, I, I enjoy the performances, you know, greatly, you know, for the most part, especially somebody like Fred McMurray, you know, who. You know, I, I saw him in Double Indemnity years ago. Yeah. But I remember him from what was he in? Was it My Two Sons or something? Uh, or yeah, one of those. It was one of those where he has like a family. Yeah. yeah. Like some old Nick at Night show that I watched years ago where he was the kindly dad. And and here obviously he's he's this is the dark side of a character like that. Um but but yeah, you know, I, I enjoyed him. I enjoyed the acting uniformly, you know, all the way around. Um so yeah, I I I find nothing to complain about in any of any of those but um but no but jack lemon in particular is a very worthy um protagonist you know and and he's uh, you know I, I would watch him in almost anything yeah you know I, and i would have no problem if i i see jack lemon i'm like oh cool all right this yeah. is gonna be good no matter what it is so yeah and I, I don't think i've ever been disappointed by him and how great is he in glengarry glenn ross i can't oh put that God, movie over so enough good. Uh, my God, he's so good at that movie. Yeah, Fred McMurray was in my three sons. I looked that up. Uh, so you were my, you were pretty my much my three right. sons, my two dads. That's the the oh, yeah. 80s series with uh, Paul Reiser. <laughs> and, and, uh, yeah, that's my two dads. Yeah, okay, yeah. I got my number. It's okay. It's okay. Um, and and then the best supporting actor, as we said, was uh, Jack Crutchin. Uh, I hope that's how you say his name, but it's the Doctor, uh, who was again really great. You had uh, <laughs> David White who was in Bewitched. Uh, he played Larry Tate in Bewitched, um, but he's one of the executives, and he's he's pretty good. But uh, uh, Willard Waterman is the guy that has the high voice, yeah. you know, uh, that, that does that. He's he's really great. I mean, again, I, when I watch movies like this, it's, it's less of, you know, it's not like I don't see age in some of these right. movies, right? Like, uh, but it's I, I often turn to the production, you know, uh, like the like again the writing really is. It's like is this writing like really tight? 
does everything make yeah. sense? You know, there's comedy rules of three all over mm -hmm. this where one executive will say something, one executive will say something, one will drop a punchline. You know, like, yeah. I mean, they're just really hitting on all cylinders in that, and, and they couldn't have gotten a better cast, I think. I mean, oh, they're, no, they're yeah. really great. And like you said with uh, with Ray Walston, so great. And he's he's a uh, Billy Wilder regular. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, he's he's fantastic. Uh, well, I, I, mean, I, did really love, I did really love that scene, too, where after he's got his promotion, the, the guys come in the office. So he... And, and I thought this was kind of a subtle thing, too, that, you know, Sheldrake comes in uh, or he calls uh, Baxter into his office and he says, he says, you know, tell me about this key thing. And, and he knows, right? Like he oh, knows yeah. that he wants in. Right. And so essentially um, Baxter has leapfrogged these other guys. Right. So he gets he gets into this new office and suddenly these guys are like, hey. You know, hey, I need the, I need your apartment on Thursday. I need your apartment on Friday. And he's like, yeah, you can't have it. And they're like, what do you, what do you talk like? Hey, we just made you, and like he's leapfrogged them. Yeah. And and that's kind of and that's you know uh, that is a kind of a step as you said to him, you know, stepping away from this being a pushover where he's just telling them, yeah, you can't have it. And and I think it's because she's in there at this point. If I if I remember right, maybe I think um, Fran is already in there. It, but he's like, no, you can't have it. And they're like what do you mean? And he's like, yeah, you can't have it. And, and they're, and they get all upset. And then Sheldrake comes in. No, I know this happened before that because Sheldrake comes in. This is when he wants it again. And he's like, Hey, I need it on Thursday. He's like, sure. Yeah. I mean, he's still a pushover, but he's a pushover <laughs> yeah. for a higher power. Right. Right. Yeah. But, but he's, but he's, he's stepped over these guys. Yes. And these yes. guys are, don't realize now they're essentially useless. And he's treating them like, junk you know like because yeah. he's it's like you guys have inconvenienced me for so long now i only have to let it out for one person instead of four of you or three of you or whatever right. yeah you know, get out of here and and it, yeah. but it also for me watching it felt kind of rewarding as a viewer where it's like yeah tell these bastards to fuck off you know like, yeah, tell you go, man. Yeah. <laughs> like i was like super super into that um yeah that's a great point i really love that i also want to say something about mclean here because, um, you know, despite her being a screen crush for me from this movie specifically, um, yeah. you know, McLean's, McLean's line about the mirror crushes me yes. every time. Yeah. And, and I want to I give the quote here. Baxter says, the mirror, it's broken. And Fran mm -hmm. says, yeah, I know. I like it that way. Makes me look the way I feel. And, dude, I physically sink. Yeah. In my couch. Now, this is something that could be seen as cheesy in any other movie, I feel like. But, man, yeah. it hits for me in, like, here in this movie. Every time I yeah. watch it, it almost gives me, like, goosebumps. Because, like, again, it's not very subtle, like, of a line. But it's, like, right. a crushing line. Because you, mm -hmm. like, you can see she's sad. You can see, you kind of know what's going on behind the scenes as a viewer. And, man, yeah. when she drops that line, again, it, it feels like kind of a... I don't know. I could see someone thinking it's a real cheesy line, but dude, yeah. wow, what a no, hitter! Yeah, I, I like that line, and 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 then you know the that that leads in to the um, the secretary character who comes up to her at the Christmas party, yeah, which is just like it's like this is a bad move for you, <laughs> lady, because she she comes in and she's like, oh, you're the yeah, she's like, I know who you are. You're the you're the latest. This is Sheldrake's secretary. It's like, yeah, you're, you're just the latest, you know, it was me for a while. 
and then there was somebody else and there was so you know and she like goes through who all these people were that he you know he's like he's telling you he's gonna leave his wife isn't he it's like yeah he said that to me too yeah and 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 that's like the moment for her where you're this is where you're seeing Shirley McLean's character like she's already had these feelings but she keeps she's kept telling herself ah you know he's he's really I can really tell he means it you know he he wants to leave his wife he wants to leave her and you know then it then she comes up and is, and just essentially torpedoes it all and it just drops she just falls off a cliff you know um so I yeah that that was the next moment that I that was the moment I liked and that, like you know as you said the moment where these conversations were going on earlier in the film and now she just steps up and just drops a boulder on all of them and they're all crushed and and that leads into her now having kind of this panic moment and she's like you really don't love me and, yeah you know and he's like well yeah what do you mean yeah of course i do of course you know and he's and he's bullshitting yeah right? it feels like, we, like bullshit. You know, yeah we know who he is um by this you know by this point so um yeah it, that that stuff is all is all pretty terrific you know and and it's um again of its time to a degree maybe um that that i mean this is essentially all we know shirley mclean through right is she operates the elevator and she's dating a married guy but i mean i i don't know what how you know let's you know look at other films of the time i mean how developed is she she's probably this is probably you know she's probably significantly developed more than in other films right than, yeah. than the female protagonist in many other movies of this time yeah i think the film though at least to me very clearly seems to be focusing a lot more on jack lemon early on yeah until that suicide sequence which again takes a large portion of the film mm-hmm. and i think the moment that they start developing shirley mcclain and by developing, developing, I don't mean giving you a ton of information about their life. Honestly, you only right. learn about who she is as a person or what she does through what Jack Lemmon's character, Baxter, learns. You know, if he yeah. asks her something or it's during their conversations because Baxter is our protagonist. Like he is yes. like the main person. We do follow other people at times, but he is yeah. the one that we follow. So we only yeah. learn as much about, Shirley, uh, about uh, Fran as... Baxter would know, which makes sense to me. But even yeah. in that, though, you'll learn a lot about Fran through her actions. So yeah. the fact that she is capable of, you know, dating uh, Sheldrake, knowing that he's married, but she also is being duped by him. We know this. Yeah. She knows this, right? Right. However, it really hits her. Ho- it really hits home. Uh, how duped she's been whenever she talks to the secretary, which is definitely a bomb. Um, yeah. And then, you know, the, again, leads to that great mirror sequence. Yeah. And then you have, uh, like, the suicide thing. That teaches us a lot about her. Um, yeah. And afterwards, we start learning about her, again, through her actions. I think, again, every character, really the only two characters that matter in this movie in terms of development, I think, are... are Baxter and Fran, namely yeah. Baxter, but Baxter mm-hmm. and Fran. So with the development, I'm fine because you really don't know a ton about Fred McMurray. But I'll tell you this, you know, a lot more than you would in a lot of other movies, even from today, where people just yeah. seem to, you know, forget about people. Um, and in this one, you know, we learn a lot about Fred McMurray through his conversations with Fran and just while Fran talks about him. Right. Yeah. Um I just think every scene is perfect, but <laughs> yeah. well, and you get you do get a couple of good looks at Fred McMurray 
um, you know, the just the phone call sequence, just the way yeah. that's staged is you get, ju- it, it cuts to his house. It's Christmas morning. His boys are playing, like he's playing with his kids who are playing with their Christmas toys. And the phone rings and it's, um, you know, it's Baxter, right? It's telling him, you know, telling him about all this stuff. But you get this good look at him, like who he's pretending to be, you know, who he is in front of everyone else. And, and then, you know, what kind of what's in his heart, I guess, you know, because he's there and he's just like, yeah, so, okay, take care of this for me. You know, and, and it's, yeah. he, it's, it's so it's hard. Another, yeah, yeah. It's just another, like, it's just like he's delegating to an underling to fix something, you know, that is a mess that, you know, it's essentially his mess, right? Yeah. Um, that he's caused that's, you know, that's impacting someone significantly. But, but I like that. And, I, you know, I do want to mention, I want to mention one more thing yeah, before please. I forget. I'm going to forget if I don't. The moment that really made me laugh <clears throat> was toward the end, uh, not toward the, it's like, uh, it's kind of the end of the middle, I guess. Um, he, after, um, this is the next day after Dr. Dreyfus has come in and, and, you know, done all his stuff. And he's like, if you need anything else, let me know. And he goes and knocks on the door the next morning and, and Mrs. Dreyfus answers the door. <laughs> And she just starts tearing him up and down. She starts tearing yeah. him a new one. Because again, they think that he's just like a womanizer. He's yeah. this partier. And they don't realize that he's, you know, he's essentially doing a good, he's doing a good thing. And he, she calls him a beatnik at one point. <laughs> and, just up. and it's just so like, I, I can't remember. She, she, she's walking and she's like, don't let this beatnik give you a hard time or something or fool you or something. And it just yeah. cracked me up. And she, that was like the, really the only moment she got, you know, was this one scene, but um, that, that was, that was terrific. And that, that really did me, I, I really did kind of crack up watching that. So um, that, that was kind of a laugh out loud moment for me. Yeah. Uh, you know, before we start to really conclude this, uh, this movie, tell, tell us something else that you, liked about the movie. I know you have a few notes and I want to make sure, sure yeah. we get to some of that stuff, you know, really just anything else you want to mention, but you know, right. Yeah. What I, else do you there, have? There, let's see. I'm, I'm going, uh, yeah, let me, let me kind of flip through. Um, I, I did again, I, I mentioned this, but I really did love the, and this is kind of a thing that, uh, and I think, you know, talking about, you know, you were talking about the way movies were made at the time. And this kind of the strict code, right, was that um, that they had there. There was a surprising number of like hells. I think there was maybe. I mean, you know, this was this was for a movie of this time was was you know a mainstream film at least was a little bit risque, just a little bit. Um, the, the language surprised me. It wasn't. It didn't like. It wasn't like full on you know, like today, but he, there was, I think there was like a go to hell or you can go to hell or something like that at one point. And, and of course the, the subject matter itself, right. is essentially like these dudes are banging women in his apartment all the time. I watched this and thought, how did this movie ever get made? Yeah. That's how I thought of it. It's not a little risque. This is like, would have (laughs) never been made even eight to 10 years earlier. Uh, right. Maybe even yeah. less, because uh, the uh-huh. seven-year itch is pretty risque as well, which was in '55. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. So maybe even like six years. I don't know. Uh, yeah. If TV, yeah. you know, one thing. If if people out there don't really care for TV uh, very much, uh, we oh. got to give TV a little credit here. 
You know, because yeah. TV made movies go, you know what? We're just going to give you ratings. <laughs> you right. just make yeah. whatever you want. <laughs> We've yeah. have never gotten The Godfather were it not for movies <laughs> like The Apartment. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. Um, okay. There, and there's another one more line. Um, one more exchange. The, this is the early, early on, this is the first one, I think, that we see when we see the uh, the first one of the executives with, the, with his lady friend yeah. exiting the apartment. And he's oh, like, <laughs> you're going to get, he's like, oh, I'm going to put you on the subway. And she's like, "No, you're not. You're gonna you're gonna pay for me a taxi." And, <laughs> and it turns into this thing. He's like, "Well, where do you live?" And she's like, "The Bronx." And he's like, "And this is the this is the exact exchange. Why do all why do all you dames live in the Bronx?" And then she she says, "You bring other girls here." And then and he gets he gets kind of mad. He's like, "Certainly not. I'm a happily married man." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> dude. But that's like I. Man, that's the wit right there. Yeah, that's that's where it was, you know, right in its wheelhouse. And and another thing about Billy Wilder is he's very well known for for the uh, kind of witty, quick back and forth between characters. We see this in Double Mm -hmm. Indemnity between Fred McMurray and Stanwyck. Um, Mm -hmm. We see this a a lot in in Ace in the Hole, which I don't know if you've seen, but Criterion put it out uh, again after several years. Kirk Douglas and, you know, he's in this Albuquerque newspaper at this place and uh you know when he's talking to people it's boom 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 just like this quick dialogue very quick back and forth and that's something about the apartment that i love too is and it's part of what really sells all these sequences that you and i have disagreed with and agreed on like Mm -hmm. part of it is just the the delivery the way things snap back and forth there's like Mm -hmm. you know it's like having you know a really good you know like a I don't know. I'm trying to think of a good example. Like, you know, you can tell if a chip's good if you break it and just like has that good yeah. snap, right? Yeah. But you know uh-huh. it's stale whenever you kind of just like break it and it just kind of like crumbles apart or something. I don't know. I'm making shit up right now, but the point is this is that this is the good chip, all right? This is the good uh-huh. cookie. This is the good uh-huh. name anything crunchy that's supposed to be like crispy or whatever. Uh that's right. this thing. And, um, you know, it's just all the dialogue is, is just on fucking point, dude. Um, and so like whenever even the mirror sequence, it just seems like the the film never tries to make itself seem realistic per per se. I mean, it's all within like, it's very clearly written within like a universe of its own, right? Like it's setting a tone. It's setting a style. It gives room for these like very traditionally written three-part jokes. And, you know, um, there are really great moments where Jack Lemmon is straining spaghetti with a tennis racket, you know? Um, And, and like these, just these like little moments, but man, like their dialogue there, like, sorry, not because he was doing that by himself, I believe, but uh, wait, was he with the tennis racket? Was she there for that? He was, but they, they had talked about it. That's what I thought. He actually shows him the racket. It's like, what is this? What is this? Why is this in your kitchen? Yeah. He's like, oh, you straight spaghetti. Yeah. uh, Yeah. Again, a callback, right? There's just like never a wasted moment in this thing. And so, you know, whenever, but whenever he's straining it, he's like singing to himself, like kind of humming. Yeah. And, and, and just how his body moves and stuff is almost like a dancer. Like he's just so, so seasoned as a a physical comedian. Yeah. That he just sells. I can't. I can't praise Jack Lemmon highly enough. I, I love. This is one of my favorite movies with him in it, and he's yeah. fantastic. Um, 
But yeah, just dude, that dialogue. I'm I'm glad you brought that up. Just that that interaction between one of the executives and uh, just them arguing about whether she's going to take a taxi or a subway. Yeah, you know, all you dames, blah blah blah. You bring other girls here. Just that yeah. whole thing. There's just mm-hmm. it's not a wasted moment. Like you know what right. I mean? Like it's very because yeah. it also develops. Like yeah, they they have multiple women because you see some of them with multiple people, and they never tell the other one about another, you know, like it's very much this womanizing ring. Mm -hmm. And uh, man, I just, I think it's great. Anything else you want to touch on before we? No, no, I think, yeah, I think that's good. Um, Yeah. I, yeah, I, uh, you know, I overall enjoyed it. Um, It it wasn't, you know, I I don't hate it. I just, you know, like I said, I have these, I have those things that I saw and I was just like, "Ah, okay. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I'm just glad that we did this episode so that we could really establish that you're wrong. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Um, no, I, you know, I, the only thing I'll say is, uh, and again, I, I'll, I guess I'll say it this way. I don't really, when I watch older movies and stuff, I don't really look at them as, oh, well, that's just a product of its time. I think, and I'm not, I'm not commenting on what you've said. I'm just talking in general that I, 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 I feel like that is just kind of an underhanded criticism. Like this isn't very good, but for the time it's okay. And I think, if anything, we should be going back to this type of writing and the writing of many others. Of course, updating it with the certain types of development we're accustomed to, the fine-tuned, polished nature of a lot of scripts these days. Yeah. But in terms of the bare bones, the structure, if you if you were to pull back the walls of this house back to the studs, look at that, yeah. right? And um, again, there's not a wasted moment in this movie. There is one thing that is a product of its time, though. And these are the only things that I would say any kind of criticism for. And this is like a five-star movie to me. So they don't affect how I see the film. But I will at least be real with this. I admit that the film does end fairly abruptly, like most movies of, you know, pre, you know, before the code ended, basically. A lot of those movies, it's like, you know, you have the big conflict resolution and then, you know, one scene, then it's over. You see the end screen. <laughs> like, yeah, and this yeah. one does that, right? Like, it, it, is, it is a stressful conflict all the way to the last two minutes or something. Mm-hmm. And then they resolve the whole thing in two minutes. I get that. I still think, do, based on the writing and the time, it's perfect. However, yeah. I do acknowledge that for a new viewer who's maybe not used to watching films from, you know, the 50s. I know this was 1960, but, you know, we're coming out of the 50s here. Um, yeah. you know, that, that could be a thing. The other thing is, um, you know, if, uh, 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 I'm looking, I'm looking, I'm looking. Yeah. Other than that, I think some people might be able to see something like McLean's mirror line, which I just like praised real hard. Mm-hmm. Um, and, 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 you know, some of the executives, when they do their banter between the three of them, very, very quick, you know, Baxter almost can't keep up with them cause they're just bullying him essentially, uh, yes. like I could, it, it does, it is that old kind of acting, right? Like that mm-hmm. kind of that production code era acting where these Absolutely. people are very much characters. But again, like, you know, we can watch movies today where you have like, think of something like Billy Madison. He's not a fucking right. real person. Like he's right. ridiculous. You know what yeah. I mean? <laughs> like yeah. Yeah. he's ridiculous. Yeah. And that's part he of what's funny. Person, you would hate him. Yeah. yeah. He's a character. Right. Like right. he is this silly character put in kind of like the reality that he is. And and I that's how I kind of watch these people, too. Like they're just these very specific character actors 
that are mm-hmm. doing a very specific character. And uh, yeah, but I know that I'm sitting here kind of like, you know, <laughs> saving my criticisms. Uh, but I, I, it's, I'm more saying them because they're not criticisms to me, but more of like, hey, if you go watch this movie, if you haven't seen it, these yeah. are some things you just be expecting. You know, like these are things. And, and I encourage anyone, like any kind of person going back and watching anything in film history, it's not that you justify it as a part of its time. There are certain things like the creepiness of him looking yeah. up the information. Like that just yeah. probably wasn't even a big issue then, but now it would just be the scariest like serial yeah, yeah. killer shit, you know, or, um, uh, you know, the, uh, the way the story unfolds or like, I always encourage people like, just look at how tight the writing is. Like, what is this? What story is it telling you? I have to do this a lot with like film noir too, you know, cause a lot of the same kind of issues, very abrupt endings, you know, all of that. But man, whenever you actually see how stories are told, um, both visually and how they unfold, I think you'll find a, a like just a ton to love about movies of this era. Um, but all that to say, uh, you know, this is Billy Wilder. This is our memoriam uh, to Billy Wilder. Uh, unfortunately, Joe's a terrible person. Um, and uh, I'm all over this dead guy. I don't care. Yeah. <laughs> I don't even care. <laughs> no, man. Um, you know, no, you no. can. His, he's made, his movies are his movies are. He's a trailblazer. His movies are great. You know, you know that's. He did every just like every genre too. Pretty. I mean, not every single one, but I mean, like he had his hand in so many different things, and he did them all. I mean, Lost Weekend is completely different than this. So is yeah. Double Indemnity. Both of those back to back are also very different. Um, yeah. You know, he was able to do, and if you watch Double Indemnity and Sunset Boulevard, both of which film noir, but they're completely different. And so it's like yeah. he was really able to, you talked about trailblazing. I mean, he really trailblazed multiple different uh, genres. And toward the late 50s and 60s, he was doing more romantic comedies. But they're all just like this one. They're all like very specific and, and trailblazers in and of themselves. Some like a hot's no different, you know. Yeah. It did things that it, you'd never seen before at the time and everything in the movie. I mean, there are mobsters in it and shit. Like, it's awesome. Um, yeah. But if you want to watch The Apartment, listeners, uh, you can get it on. It's on Prime Video. Um, and, you know, you have to, it's like $3.99. I strongly I encourage you to do this. And I actually watched, on, <laughs> I actually watched on Pluto TV. Um, they have On Demand. And they had it available on demand. What's um, Pluto TV? Pluto TV is like a free... Um, it, it's like it's almost like Sling TV if it was free. So it doesn't have like most of the really like mainstream stations. It doesn't have there's no TBS or TNT or you know USA Network or anything like that. But there's a lot of like there's like an American Gladiators channel. What? A, you, you, should, you should check it out. There's I should. An Impact Wrestling channel. Dude, I, I don't know anything about Pluto. I just learned about uh, Tubi. T U B I. Uh, it's also free on there. I just looked up. So if you want to yeah. check that out, if you have a PS4, if you have a smart TV, you can just get these apps. Like they're just free. Yeah. You just have to make an account. So I guess you can watch it for free. Thank you for that because yeah. I just looked it up and I noticed I don't pay much attention to these, and I really yeah. do need to like focus on these because these are free ways. Uh, but yeah. if you don't have access to them for some reason or don't feel comfortable or just don't want to start it, you can rent it on Apple TV, YouTube, iTunes, yeah. and Amazon. So it's pretty much anywhere. This is a trailblazer, yeah. regardless of uh, how you'll feel about it at the end. It is an important film, and you should definitely check it out. At the very least, it's an Oscar winner. 
You know, you should, again, yeah, you should watch it absolutely. Yeah, I, I don't put a ton of stock in the Oscars, but this is uh, this is a winner, and um, you should just check it out. So, uh, Joe, any final thoughts before we move on? No, that no, that's it. Hey, this is a good episode, and yeah, go go check out this movie. Tell us what you think about it. Uh, don't forget to find us on all those usual places, right? Letterboxd and Twitter and Instagram yep. and. Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, Medium Cool Pod. You can also find uh, Joe and I on Letterboxd just using our names. Uh, These are also in the description notes, by the way, for the podcast, so you can find us pretty easily. But my Letterboxd is Austin Glidden. His is Joe Shear. You can find us on uh, personally on Twitter as well. I'm Austin Glidden because I'm cool, and Joe is Joe Shearer 9 because uh, right. he's lame. So <laughs> you gotta have the number because I, I I was doing something else when I first got back in the day. You know, I I was on there. Um, I you know I was on Twitter. I was doing other things, so I didn't find my own name uh, until then. I finally got my own account, and I was like, ah, okay, I'll be yeah. here nine. I guess I don't know. This There's is com- eight more of me somewhere in the world. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> this is completely pointless. But I forgot my password for my account. Ugh. Yeah. And so I started a new one that was Austin, excuse me, Austin underscore Glidden. Mm-hmm. And then I figured out how to get the password and I changed it. So oh, yeah. I've had this this account for like, I'm looking it up right now. I joined in 2009. So I got the Austin wow. Glidden Ground thing. Floor, yeah. And now you can't find that. So I had to do the underscore. But now, now I have, uh, you know, I still have yeah. it. So I win. Hey, I'll, I'll say on Gmail, I've got my name. My name and my name with middle initial with no numbers or anything. So I'm, I'm pretty proud of that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We're like completely on a tangent. Uh, I want to, I want to thank everybody for listening. If you agree or disagree, hit us up. Uh, definitely go check this movie out regardless. We've already told you where you can check it out. That's uh, Pluto TV and Tubi. Uh, you can watch for free. You can also get it on YouTube, iTunes, Google play, Apple TV and Amazon, pretty much anywhere. Just search for it. Uh, rent it watch it for free however you need to definitely worth your time and uh, Joe as always man thanks a lot thanks a lot see ya all right everyone that was our uh, you know long form discussion about uh, Billy Wilder's The Apartment again Billy Wilder died May 27th 2002 and uh, you know, he just, he's just one of those kind of iconic filmmakers. And, and though Joe is just, uh, criminally wrong about this movie, <laughs> uh, which is easy to say when he can't defend himself. Um, I, uh, we both encourage you to go check it out. Definitely, definitely do. Uh, just a groundbreaking piece of art there. So anyways, uh, remember to go check out our, uh, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Medium Cool Pod. Go check out our social media so you can vote on which of the Barry Levinson movies that we're going to watch and uh, talk about next week. Uh, That will be a lot of fun. Again, remember that I'm going to get some uh, members of Living Sacrifice from the documentary I talked about up top um, to come in. We'll do those probably as bonus episodes because we have the next month or so planned out already. Uh, But it'll be great fun. Uh, Thank you so much for listening. Seriously, we love you guys. For now... Good night, good luck, and take it easy.